Dennis, we've been talking about um, Western herbs and Western herbalism mm. over the mm. past couple of weeks, and we're, we're probably going to get onto that topic too, but something came up just recently about honeys, and we know you love honey. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Uh, you and I briefly touched on it before we came to the program, but big debate taking place, big discussion, big disagreement perhaps taking place between New Zealanders and Australians as to who owns the name Manuka and who can claim that they manufacture or produce Manuka honey. Let's look at the politics of honey. We know that you know so much about honey and Manuka honey is one of those really interesting things over the years, especially uh, in the last few decades, because it really wasn't much treasured, was it, either in New Zealand or in Australia? That's correct. And That's correct. And then, I mean, in New Zealand it was always the cheapest honey you could yes, buy in yes. the supermarkets. Yes. It was still there, though. And I had a... Um, a beekeeper um, say to me years ago from the north coast where it, where it is produced today prolifically as it's always been produced there where it grows where the plant Leptospermum polygonatum or the jelly bush where it grows prolifically. I had a, a, um, a beekeeper up there saying that you couldn't give it away years ago. What we call manuka honey here um, also goes under the name of, of jelly bush. And um, it's a very thick, tarry-like honey that was never, ever popular as a, as a food and a bit of a menace to some beekeepers because it was so hard to extract from the frame when you tried to spin it out. But, of course, what's happened is that um, the uh, manuka, if we use that term, the manuka uh, tree, uh, which really is associated with what we call the Leptospermum genus, now, all plants have a, a generic name and a species name. Leptospermum is the generic name of a group of trees uh, which um, produce, interestingly, honey that's been shown to have significant antimicrobial characteristics. That is, the honey that's produced from, say, Leptospermum scaparium, which is the manuka honey in New Zealand, uh, honey that's produced from Leptospermum polygonatum or the jellybush honey here in Australia have been shown to have chemical constituents which are significantly antimicrobial, that means infection fighting. And as a result, um, manuka honey, whether it is uh, Australian manuka honey or whether it is New Zealand manuka honey, I prefer to call it honey. Uh, extracted from various species of Leptospermum, uh, these have been shown to produce a honey which is quite remarkable, and let me emphasise, quite remarkable for its ability to address serious infections, particularly associated with wounds and skin lesions that are resistant frequently to some of our most potent antibiotics. So suddenly, uh, jellybush honey or Manuka honey, as people prefer to call it, both here and overseas, suddenly it's hit the, 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 the world stage and big money is being paid for manuka honey, whether it be from the jellybush tree in Australia or from the manuka tree in New Zealand. Uh, both have very significant levels of the antimicrobial factor. In fact, a good case is made for saying that the Australian species of leptospermum have higher levels, that might be a little bit debatable, but seemingly not, higher levels of the antimicrobial factor. 
Of course, on the on the world stage, there's a big battle going on as to who is entitled to use the name Manuka. A good case has been made by the Australians to say that Manuka is just as much uh, entitled to be used by Australian beekeepers as it is by the New Zealanders. I guess that'll be sorted out eventually after the debate and other things uh, are resolved. But this is a classic case of how honey, as I always anticipated, would come into its own. And how frequently, even on this program, Jane, have we spoken about the historic use of various honeys, not just the ones based on leptospermum, various honeys, particularly in Europe, uh, going right back to the time of the Greeks and the Romans, uh, were used to address uh, very significant health problems, particularly lesions on the skin, um, wounds, uh, battle wounds, infections, etc. But now we have this remarkable finding, which is being utilised by even hospitals in the United Kingdom uh, to address um, internal conditions. Uh, one paper I read uh, spoke about the way in which uh, Manuka honey was being used as an agent to address some of the, uh, uh, how can you call it, the, the tissue damage, the, the rawness of um, various um, conditions or surgeries that had taken place on, on the throat and, and with great results. Now, uh, the, the thing that follows from this and the, and the great and interesting thing that emerges is with Manuka honey or Leptospermum honey, perhaps we can call it that because, uh, as I've said, numerous species of Leptospermum produce uh, honey with this antimicrobial factor. It grows prolifically and very, very easily. And there seems to be now a great encouragement in papers and articles that are being written to encourage uh, everyone, but particularly people with marginal land, to consider uh, planting um, acreage, if you like, of Leptospermum scoparium and Leptospermum polygonatum as basically a potential honey crop so that uh, a farm uh, deliberately growing trees with um, this content of chemistry in them, producing honey with the chemistry in them, uh, can have, if you like, another cash flow, particularly when the, uh, the farm takes on board uh, beehives to harvest the honey from it. Now, do, this, they, do these trees cope well in they the do. dry? Uh, they cope, cope particularly well. Um, when... Um, this um, debate started about um, uh, which manuka was the best, whether Australia was entitled to uh, use the, the, the name manuka, uh, whether, the, whether New Zealanders had a, a monopoly on it. I got very much involved in the jellybush honey argument and I had um, an analysis done of um, Leptospermum and polygonatum, some of which grows on my property in the Hunter. And um, I was so encouraged that I actually um, purchased from some of the um, nurseries that specialise in, uh, in uh, producing um, little plants associated with various Australian species. I purchased a couple of hundred of them and planted them in very, very poor and marginal um, country in my property at Rothbury. And even in this uh, climate and even in this terrible drought that we're experiencing in the Hunter, they have survived where even some of the, uh, the, the, the eucalypts are struggling. The little um, jellybush, potential jellybush, the honey-producing one, are thriving. So the good thing there is that uh, you don't need to do much on them. 
just plant them and on marginal land um, you could be perhaps doing the best thing for the land and the best thing for, for perhaps getting this product uh, circulating and making money for people. I'm, I'm very enthusiastic, as you can tell, because it's, it's uh, coming to a head. A lot of the things that I've anticipated about the medicinal and therapeutic properties of honey are coming to a, a head with the emergence of the Leptospermum genus and its various species being shown to be remarkable plants, uh, perhaps even cultivated deliberately and planted out to produce honey that is remarkable for its healing properties. Health Naturally with Dennis Stewart today. and We're talking about honey. We have herbal uh, medicine in the Western world on the agenda as well. But, Dennis Stewart, um, you're talking about encouraging mm. people to grow mm. the mm. jelly bush honey, the mm. leptospermum. Yeah. Um, does this happen elsewhere in the world? It, it, it does. In fact, um, uh, I'm so encouraged about this concept of, um, how can you call it, encouraging honey farms that um, I accumulated a lot of literature on it. And in one of the many books that I have, on honey and beekeeping, there was an interesting section dealing with what um, the Israelis are doing mm-hmm. um, in very arid, desert-like country. What the Israelis have done is plant out numerous honey-producing trees. Now, admittedly, not with the point of view of, um, of uh, how can I call it, producing only manuka honey, but honey-producing trees. And so what they did in a marginal country, a country that had shown to be useless for very much, uh, for anything at all, they selected, interestingly, uh, some of the best uh, honey-producing eucalypts that Australia grows naturally and did an analysis and planted out acreages, many acreages of particular species, uh, rapid-growing, very survivalistic species, of eucalypt in desert country, these things thrive. And in fact, the article points out that the honey derived from the acreages of these high-yield eucalypts gives the uh, the farmer and uh, the producer a greater income than what he would get if he were taken up with conventional agricultural pursuits. So my encouragement here is a serious encouragement for people that have particularly marginal land that's doing nothing, think about, uh, think a little bit left field if you like, think about what the Israelis have already done and what we can do just as well here in planting out the manukas. Mm, especially with mm. the, the dry, dry conditions. Very that much we so. Have, Very and much so. Have had this century, really. Very much so. Yes. Uh, just uh, there's been a call in Dennis from someone who wanted to know if this program is being recorded, and yes, it is. Uh, like all of our uh, programs in the middle of the day, this program will be podcast, and it should be up on the website too, later this afternoon. Lovely. Feel free to mm. listen again. So uh, you wanted to go over a little bit about Western herbalism, Dennis. Yeah, I want to uh, follow up this theme that we've been developing for the last couple of weeks in trying to uh, get over to listeners that uh, herbal medicine as it is practised around the world is uh, practised according to various interpretations and traditions of herbalism. And uh, we, we all know and have heard about Chinese herbalism. Now, it's based on entirely different principles 
and philosophies than that of Western herbalism. Um, we can look at um, Middle Eastern herbalism known as the, the Dib system, and it is uniquely based on a, on a philosophy of disease and healing, and round it are gathered a group of herbs. Western herbalism, as I have tried to point out, is a system of herbalism that reaches way back to the Greeks, uh, comes right through uh, to Europe, uh, is something that uh, is also embraced uh, as a result of European colonisation, embraced a lot of the herbal knowledge of the Americas and also uh, took on board uh, the traditional knowledge of herbs in, in countries like England, etc. So Western herbalism, as we understand it today, is an eclectic uh, tradition, primarily reaching back to the Greeks, embracing the American plant experience and knowledge of the Red Indians, and gives us today a, a spectrum of herbs that are beautifully reflected in, in good literature, credible literature, literature that's, uh, that's medically uh, supported and pharmacologically supported in documents like the British Herbal Pharmacopoeia, so that in the practice of Western herbalism today, what we would say is it tends to be, uh, certainly in my opinion, uh, more scientifically based uh, on premises and ideas that uh, most Western scientists would give some degree of credibility to. Uh, in, under, in Western herbalism is based on understanding, as far as possible, uh, what it is in the herb that gives it credibility in addressing ser uh, certain diseases. Not always is that possible, but Western herbalism has moved, even in my 40 years, uh, away from uh, an, an imperial, uh, empirical uh, interpretation to a much more um, uh, phytopharmaceutical, phytochemical way of describing herbal action. So it's, it's developing more into what's called phytotherapy, that is a therapeutic modality moving increasingly towards the mainstream, still emphasising a lot of tradition, and we can't work without that tradition because many herbs still defy uh, the ability to explain their usage, but it's moving increasingly towards what I would consider anyway to be medical acceptance, uh, and I say that honestly and truthfully. I see more interest today amongst uh, medical practitioners who seemingly are nowhere near as sceptical as what was so 40 years ago. And I put a lot of this down to the literature, the explanation for herbal action, and of course the way in which a large percentage of the Australian population utilise herbal medicine, whether it be over-the-counter herbal medicine from the pharmacist or the health food store, or whether it be herbal medicine dispensed by a practitioner for a particular condition. And this is what people need to appreciate. There are in our society a group of people known as medical herbalists, of, of which I am one, obviously, who belong to appropriate accrediting associations, who practice professionally in consulting rooms, who take on board conditions appropriate to herbal medicine and exist and exist very well and help many people. So it, it is no longer something that hasn't got an educational base. It has a significant educational base, and there are a, a large group of professionals now uh, on the verge of registration, already acknowledged and accredited by the various associations as people with expertise in the use of plants, 
in the healing of the of the human organism. Now, this needs to be emphasised again that Western herbal medicine is not an alternative. It's a component, a complement to mainstream medicine. It is foolish for people to think it is an either-or situation. As I've said before, Jane, and you have heard me say it, the medical practitioner in our society is the basis of our health care. As medical herbalists, what we do is, if you like, complement, uh, fill out, uh, work with conditions that perhaps are not well managed by the mainstream, but seem to yield to some of the secrets of the herbs. Health Naturally on 2NURFM and Dennis Stewart looking at Western herbalism after we've looked at honey. Mm. And uh, we did talk about uh, over the last couple of weeks a couple of herbs, Dennis, being slippery elm being one. We did. In fact, um, what we've sought to do so far in, in our discussion particularly of American herbs, keeping in mind um, that, as I've said already in this program, uh, Western herbal medicine uh, is very, very dependent upon the uh, herbs of the American continent. And not exclusively, but they play a, a role that is so fundamental that without the American selection, it would be very difficult, certainly from my perspective, to practice Western herbalism uh, the way we do. And what I've sought to do so far is look at what I would consider to be iconic um, herbs from the American selection, if you like. And I started off the discussion a number of weeks ago by looking at um, perhaps the best representative of uh, American uh, herbs and one that's particularly well known, more well known than what uh, many people would appreciate. In fact, it, it surprised me how frequently in practice when I mentioned the, the herb slippery elm People will say, oh, yes, I've used it, or I know about it, or my mother used it. It's something that uh, is better known than what we give credit for. And I spoke about slippery elm, and when we talk about slippery elm, um, I perhaps give the impression that it's, that it's a herb. Well, it comes from the slippery elm tree, which is a big tree, almost fulva is its botanical name, and, and the bark is carefully and cautiously and appropriately and sensitively harvested from that particular species of the elm and dried and turned into a remarkable powder which becomes a slippery elm powder which has made its way into Western herbalism and of course is readily available from our good health food stores. Now I spoke about the benefits of this remarkable substance uh, and particularly its benefits on what we call the gastrointestinal tract uh, listeners should know that when we talk about the gastrointestinal tract, putting it briefly, we're looking at that great tube that starts in our mouth and ends up at the other end, so to speak, in various parts, and it's prone to very many diseases, some functional and, and some organic, and rightly um, needs to be always investigated uh, regardless of the level of dysfunction. Uh, the gastrointestinal tract always needs to be investigated before before you seek to use slippery elm to address any problem. Uh, now, having said that, because of the safety of slippery elm, it's most unlikely to interact with any conventional medication. Slippery elm contains a very significant substance called mucilage, as well as many other things. But what mucilage does, it's a, it's a thick, uh, viscous substance which puts a, a protective barrier on the gut wall as it passes through the gastrointestinal tract. And this makes it very important in managing 
a lot of conditions, particularly the upper gut reflux and things like that, where the tissue perhaps is inflamed and where there's a lot of burning and discomfort, slippery elm is, is very successful still, either on its own or supporting modern medication in providing relief for a condition which seems to be exploding in our community at present. Upper gut problems, what we loosely refer to as, uh, as reflux, it works remarkably well there. But another area where it works well, and I'll give an example of this in a moment, is where it tends to regulate um, particularly intestinal functioning and particularly the functioning of the large bowel. Many people that suffer conditions that might be referred to as, as irritable bowel or have conditions associated with, uh, with, with surgical procedures that have left uh, the bowel perhaps hypersensitive or where due to other things, uh, the bowel has lost a, a degree of its control. And in a situation like that, frequently two things can emerge. There can be a constipational tendency or equally uh, there can be a condition where the bowel loses its ability to control. Now, this is where slippery elm is perhaps underappreciated. Many, many people experience embarrassment because of that level of dysfunction. And I had an interesting um, case or patient who, um, who listens to this program regularly, as I'm sure many other listeners do. And he came into my rooms the other day particularly to tell me that over the last month, as, he, as he's been using two teaspoonfuls of slippery elm powder daily, um, he was taking it, interestingly, almost as a porridge, which is an old-fashioned way of using it. In the old days, they spoke about slippery elm gruel, which was given, but he was using it in an old-fashioned way, and I have no reason to doubt what this uh, person said when he said the control that now is asserting itself in his bowel is unbelievable, that the number of embarrassing situations that he's sustained has virtually dropped away and that his life has been changed significantly by his understanding that slippery elm, with its regulating or controlling effect on the large bowel, has altered significantly his life experience. That's a great example of what this remarkable herb can be do. The, the good thing that I am aware of now is the way in which uh, quite a few medical practitioners and here and there even gastroenterologists are beginning to acknowledge and here and there recommending that slippery elm be used for particularly functional conditions of the gastrointestinal tract. I was excited because here was a listener who took on board the very safe advice that I always try to give and with a problem that was not being well managed in the mainstream despite years and years of dedicated treatment from various members of the profession, simply by using two teaspoons of slippery elm daily in a simple way, his uh, functioning of his large bowel was just incredibly improved. Isn't that exciting? That and it's, is it's exciting, encouraging yes. for the program too because this allows mm -hmm. listeners to see that uh, a lot of what we say and try to do uh, can definitely help. To a new RFM, and it is health naturally. We have Margaret, who's rung in from Cliftley, and uh, you've been sparked. Your interest has been sparked by the talk of slippery elm, Margaret. That certainly has. How are you, Dennis? Hello, Margaret. How are you? I'm fantastic. Now, Good. I've probably got two questions. The first question is: My husband does not have a colon, hmm. 
its whole colon has been yes. removed. Yes. And he was given a J pouch. Yes. Now, he does take um, psyllium husk twice a day. Yes. Would that slippery elm help him in any way? Look, if, if he's taking psyllium, psyllium has some similar characteristics to that of slippery elm. Um, okay. I would prefer it if you were to discuss um, the use of slippery elm, um, either in conjunction with psyllium or on its own as an alternative, uh, with your okay. doctor. With your doctor, I, I, I would think that if he's getting some benefit from psyllium, um, yep. he may well get an equal benefit or perhaps a better benefit from uh, using slippery elm. I can't vouch okay. for that, but this is why I suggest that if the, the, his good doctor has recommended uh, beneficially the use of psyllium, in my, oh. opi- in my opinion, slippery elm has got a bit of an edge on, on, yeah. on psyllium for some conditions in the gut that are a little bit more sensitive. Raise it but with... It wouldn't, it wouldn't hurt, would it, to take it? Well, the other thing is perhaps by blending it, uh, you may yep. ups- you may upset um, gotcha. the right, benefit, yeah. and and the other thing is you can always take too much of a good thing, and yep. in in as much that these two foods contain similar characteristics, similar, um, you may exacerbate a problem with too much of this uh, soluble fibre. Okay, gotcha. Right. Okay, so yes. that's the first question. Yes. The second question yes. is that I've got now. It's something you spoke about. Oh, Ages ago, I've yes. listened. Yes. Um, turmeric. Yes. Turmeric is good for. Um, well, uh, well, I spoke about turmeric some time ago and saw how that uh, turmeric, when it's used uh, prolifically in countries such as India, for instance, as well as other countries, it has a remarkable effect, seemingly, in explaining the lack of incidence of various pathologies. In the case of India, for instance, uh, cancer of the bowel was shown, okay. to, was shown to be remarkably uh, less active in the Indian population than, say, in, in the Western population. And the, the contention is that the high content of, uh, of turmeric in, in the diet with the high level of curcumin may explain uh, some of the benefit there because curcumin is put forward uh, in some of the literature as having a, a significant effect on various pathologies, particularly pathologies of the bowel. So um, uh, I think it is um, the, the two Canadians, uh, um, Gingras and Bellevue, that talk about using, I think it's a teaspoonful of turmeric daily with a little bit of black pepper as a very useful prophylactic device for getting good benefits from turmeric on the gastrointestinal tract generally, but particularly on the large bowel. Certain foods seem to have an affinity for certain organs. For instance, the tomato has great affinity for the, uh, for the prostate uh, and is considered to perhaps explain, perhaps to explain why countries where tomato is, is eaten prolifically and regularly seem to have less prostate pathologies than what we do in Anglo countries. Similarly with turmeric, a high, a high intake, regular intake of it as a food preferably. Uh, you don't have to sort of pay exorbitant amounts of money, just simple turmeric uh, from the health food store or from the supermarket can give you when it's taken regularly in the diet in about a teaspoonful daily, I would suggest, perhaps some benefit in withstanding some of these pathologies, particularly, again, I come back to the large bowel. 
turmeric topically that is not to say by the way that it has no benefit uh, when it is used topically it's not an area that I know a lot about I know a lot about uh, topical management of uh, dermatitis eczema and psoriasis with plant-based medications uh, what would you recommend then okay uh, with uh, psoriasis on the hands I I tend to think that some of the old-fashioned remedies that contain a little bit of pine tar or, okay. or oil of cade are still in the right base are still very useful devices for easing some of the itch and the proliferation of scaling um, if you if you have a compounding pharmacist they would know exactly what i'm talking about in okay. in some of the older editions of the australian pharmaceutical formulary there are topical preparations formulations that a pharmacist can access that could make up a cream that would incorporate a specific proportion uh, say of one of the tars to give relief from psoriasis wherever it is. Talk to your compounding pharmacist. And to on your RFM's health naturally at the moment with Dennis Stewart taking your calls and uh, Glennis is rung in from Caves Beach. Glennis, what uh, what was your question? Uh, hi, um, how are you, Dennis? I'm very well. How are you, Glennis? I'm not bad. Good, good, good. Um, brother has a condition um, of lipomas. The big lumps under his skin. Oh, lipomas, lip, Okay, it's, it's on the border. Is LYP? It's probably LIP. Lipomas. Um, oh, okay. okay. And look, um, he, he had thirty-seven of them cut yeah, out a yeah. couple of years yeah, ago. Yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. And look, he still has hundreds of them yeah. now. And we're just wondering if there's something that might be missing in his diet or something. Look, I wish I could help you on that, um, Dennis, <laughs> but. Um, um, in- interestingly, um, I have a lipoma in in my abdomen, which uh, only one, only one, which years ago uh, panicked me. In as much as I thought, "Hello, this is the big C hitting me," but uh, I was very quickly assured by uh, my GP that it was just a lipoma. Um, they're benign things, uh, and yeah. uh, certain, and, but they can be nuisance things. I don't know um, much about their treatment other than a surgical procedure but look what I will do Glennis uh, and I'll promise you this I will go through whatever I have in in my library and see if there is anything that could uh, be seen as offering some potential benefit in assisting this It's, it's a long shot it's a long shot but I'll give you the commitment that I will look and see if there's anything that I can pass on to you. Now, what you should do uh, before you go, hang on, and the, the, the lass at the switchboard will take your name and address so that if I am able to get anything, I can quietly send it to you and then you can discuss it with your GP amongst yourselves. And stay on the line. Thank you, Robin. And uh, let's move. Slippery on certainly seems to have touched... Mm. Uh, Touched a uh, well, not a nerve. Well, an as interest, I said, it's, it's more it's more popularly used, Jane, than what 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 I even imagined. Indeed, and uh, Diane is rung, rung in from Summerland Point. Your question about slippery elm, Diane. 
Hi. I was doing some reading about slippery elm yes. uh, a while back, and yes. it came up in one of the articles that you have to be careful taking it close to medication because it can bind with conventional medication to make it ineffective. Yeah, look, I know that is, uh, occurs in some of the literature, but a, a lot of foods, a lot of foods contain similar mucolaginous principles. So if we eat corn and, and other such foods, they have those principles also, which would imply that you shouldn't eat those sorts of foods either if you're taking medication. I think it all, all comes down to the amount of anything that you are using and when you uh, take your medication. If there, is, if there is a worry here, and particularly if people um, are wanting to use slippery elm who are on pretty significant drug protocols, it might be wise. It might be wise uh, to, to, to take slippery elm um, quite separately from the time that you're taking your medication. But I, I can speak honestly and from experience here and unapologetically I have never, let me emphasise, I have never in my 40 years of prescribing and recommending slippery elm seen this potential uh, problem emerge. So technically speaking, there is a bit of logic there that the mucolaginous principle may embody into its own mass some of the medication, but my feeling is a lot of that medication in any case may well have been taken up across, across the gut wall uh, even before uh, the, the slippery arm mucilage principle has reached that area. I'm being perhaps a little bit simplistic there, but even though, technically speaking, uh, in, in the literature that might be stated, I've got to be honest, and I, I, I can stand contradiction, I haven't ever seen any evidence of it. Thank you for your call. And one last call, I think, Dennis, for today. Robin has rung in from East Maitland and Slippery Elm Bark, your question is about, yes, Robin. Yes, yes. the Slippery Elm Bark powder, Dennis. Yes. I'm just wondering, um, my husband has a peg tube yes. and it gets a bit gluggy and yeah. I'm just wondering if you've got some advice on how I can get it down that tiny tube and the tiny opening. Okay. Well, I had a pharmacy colleague years ago who actually was able to make a Slippery Elm preparation that was uh, uh, even capable of being taken by kids with reflux. What I'd suggest, okay. what I suggest you do, see your pharmacist, tell him uh-huh. your dilemma, because the slippery elm can be turned almost into a semi-liquid form. Okay, I thought it might dilute it too much. But no, that's no, 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 can't yeah. be diluted okay. too much. So long as you get the dose, doesn't matter whatever other level yep. you take to dilute it with. Talk to your pharmacist. They're very qualified to give advice on an issue like this. And thank you, Robin, for your call. Dennis Stewart, that brings us to the end of another Health Naturally program today, and we'll be back next week. We certainly will. With more. Thanks for listening to this podcast from 2NURFM at the University of Newcastle. Topics range from gardening to health, well-being, pet care, finance, business and travel. You'll find them all at 2NURFM.com.